For what do I have if I don't have you, Jesus? What in this life could mean anymore? You are my rock. You are my glory. Hi and welcome to The Rock Podcast. In today's Bible study, Jerusalem has been attacked, the glorious temple has been leveled, and the Jewish remnant is hauled away to Babylon. Among the exiles are four young teens who will become four of the most famous men in the Bible. Let's join Pastor Ross in the first of our series through the book of Daniel with a message entitled, A Holy Resolve. So as I started to say in the introduction, that the book of Daniel is really a paradox of sorts. On that one hand, uh, it's one of the best loved and well-known books uh, of the Bible. I mean, under the threat of death, those three Hebrew young men who uh, refused to bow to the idol and get uh, tossed into a furnace and uh, come out of the flames Uh, on the other side. And then you have under the uh, same threat of death, Daniel, who refuses to stop uh, praying to God as the king's edict commanded, thrown into a a den of hungry lions only to be lifted out unharmed. And, you know, uh, Daniel and his friends are Sunday school stars, right? Uh, Because we want our kids to, to emulate these Young men who have integrity, who have courage, and this, uh, this crazy devotion to God who would, uh, that would cause them to put themselves in harm's way rather than to compromise uh, in their relationship with God. And that's the kind of faith. Um, and the Sunday school song, Dare to Be a Daniel, do you remember that? Dare to stand alone, dare to have a purpose firm, dare to make it known. And so... Uh, there are simple storylines, straightforward accounts that even a child can grasp. Now, on the other hand, as I was starting to mention, there are vast portions of Daniel, especially the last half from chapter 7 to 12, uh, that remain uh, unread and ununderstood, not understood because they're quite profound. They're, they're op- uh, apocalyptic in nature. Apocalypse means to reveal. It's actually the Greek word for revelation. And uh, this culture defines apocalypse as Armageddon, but actually it's incorrect. It really just means an unveiling of things hidden. And so Daniel is like the uh, Old Testament uh, version of the book of Revelation. And so uh, from Daniel's time... Uh, he is given a prophetic timeline that, that, that talks about the, the rises, rising and, and falling of world kingdoms and empires that go all the way to the second coming, talking about the Antichrist. And we know it's the Antichrist because that last battle destroys the entire earth is involved and that Christ is making the appearance. So we know he's talking about Uh, the end, but he starts right where they're at, at that kingdom, and God gives them mathematical, prophetic uh, information and equations, because God wants his people interested in these things. He wouldn't be saying things like, 
Jesus said in Luke 21, so when all these things begin to happen, stand and look up for your salvation is near. And so there's details um, about the Messiah, when he will come the first time and when he comes the second time. And it just lines straight up with the book of Revelation and also the book of Ezekiel, who, by the way, is a contemporary of the time. He's alive with Daniel and he's also been exiled. So when you're reading Ezekiel, it's good to know that this is the setting for Ezekiel as well. And so let me give you the simplest outline of the book of Daniel you will ever see in your entire life. All right. I like the, uh, there we go. (laughs) Chapters one through six, the first half. How to live for God in a godless, hostile environment. The second division. Chapter 7 through 12, why you'll be glad you did. (laughs) I didn't read that in any commentary, as you probably have guessed. But, you know, the funny thing is, is that actually in chapter 2, we get that golden statue, and it represents the rise and fall of the kingdoms until the Antichrist, and Christ comes and destroys him in chapter 2. Chapter 7, 8, 9, and all the way to 12 is just more visions that restate the same thing over and over again. And so as it just a phenomenal book awaits us now, and we're going to take a look at that. You know what? The reason I say why you'll be glad you did, because let me just give you a preview. I just can't help it, okay? In chapter 2, uh, the king's going to have this vision of this statue, and uh, let me... Okay, so the reason you're going to be glad that you paid attention is is because here we are down here, okay? (laughs) We're down here, but the church is going to be raptured, and then the great tribulation comes Armageddon, all right? But he starts up here with the the gold kingdom of Babylon, then it goes down, and we'll we'll study about it. But really, I mean, it's pretty... uh, Let me just read... Uh, the, the, the byline for that picture. Um, during the reigns of those kings, he's, Daniel's interpreting this, this dream. During the reign of these kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom that will never be destroyed or conquered. It will crush all these kingdoms into nothingness and it alone will stand forever. This is the meaning of the rock cut out without human hands. It is the conquering Christ to come. And so, uh, amen, we'll be glad that we pay attention (laughs) because we don't want to be involved in that. Amen? Amen. All right, let's begin with verse 1. In the third reign, in the third year, rather, of the reign of Jehoiakim, you should sound familiar, (laughs) king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. We've been talking about that for weeks. And the Lord delivered Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand, along with some of the articles from the temple of God. These he carried off to the temple of his God in Babylonia and put, in the treasure, put it in the treasure house of his God. And so we're going to park there and just get a little history. So number one, if you're a note taker, I would write down man proposes and God deposes. All right. So 
really, you really do see the sovereign hand of God upon nations and the world that men can do whatever they think they want to do. But ultimately, God is unseen orchestrator of all things on this earth. And so um, man proposes and God deposes actually is taken from a title of a, a, a masterpiece, an artwork uh, from the 1880s where there was an ill-fated Arctic expedition expedition and uh, painting of that and he called it exactly that man proposes god deposes so the opening couple verses ought to sound pretty familiar uh, to you because uh, actually i love it because the opening lines are the last lines of second kings where we finished off last week so daniel really is the perfect sequel for us. So first, a little history and theology just from two verses, and they're right there for you. Uh, the history part, of course, is uh, the king uh, of Babylon, which is modern-day Iraq, uh, invades Jerusalem and sets up a blockade. Now, there are three uh, phases of that exile. Let's go back to our chart. Do you remember our chart? <laughs> yes. Phase one. Babylon comes in, right? And if you're, uh, if you're a history person, it's the year 605 BC. This is when Daniel's taken and a little bit of the treasury. But Nebuchadnezzar just wants Jerusalem to be there as a vassal state and, and goes home. And then this next, next dude comes. He's no good either. And the Lord has to judge him. And so Nebuchadnezzar comes back, phase two. And he takes Jehoiachin and his family, and Ezekiel, and the rest of the treasury with them. Phase three, Zedekiah. Zedekiah rebels, Nebuchadnezzar comes back and says, the end to all things Jewish. Let's tear this place down, you know, and they did. And they left just a few poor people, and they took everybody else. But Daniel goes right here. But not just Daniel, as you're going to see, as a few friends. And, and we're going to take a look at that. So, you know, now the theology of those verses. Verse 2 really says, The Lord delivered the king of Jerusalem into the hands of Babylon. So, so they lost, and all of this happened. And the Lord is saying, because it's a consequence of their uh, sinning over hundreds of years. And so man proposes, God deposes for good reason. And he, those good reasons he frequently uh, and gladly makes known to us. It's called persistent idolatry, persistent rebellion, persistent disobedience. Now, there are a plethora of prophets prophesying for hundreds of years while they're in the promised land. And, and here are the men that the Jews ignored completely, okay? During the, the chart of the kings that we went through, it's Amos, Hosea, Joel, Micah, Isaiah, Elijah, Elisha, Obadiah, Nahum, Zephaniah, Habakkuk, and Jeremiah. All of those men, they either killed them, persecuted them, or completely ignored them. So God put up with that for about 860 years. And I mean, and he even told them. 
He told them so clearly. He, he warned them in Deuteronomy 4. I'm just going to read it to you. Right as they're crossing into the promised land, and I brought this up a lot, you'll remember it. He says, after you've had children, Moses speaking, the Lord through him, after you've had children and grandchildren in this beautiful land that I'm giving you, and you've lived there a long time, if you then become corrupt and make idols and do evil and provoke him to anger, I call heaven and earth as witnesses against you to this day uh, that you will quickly perish from the land that you're crossing into. You will not live there long, but you will certainly be destroyed and the Lord will scatter you among the peoples and only a few of you will survive among the nations to which the Lord will drive you. You know, I can, I've come up with a proverb. It's not like the Proverbs, but it's in First Thessalonians, uh, <laughs> all right. And 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 it goes something like this: He who is dumb enough to poke a lion in the eye repeatedly deserves to lose a few fingers. Sheesh. So before we move on, but I'll just tell you: you know, the Lord was saying, "Listen, you've turned my temple into a." brothel filled with temple shrine prostitutes. You've sacrificed your children to the God of Moloch in the fire. You, you have per persecuted and killed all the holy prophets that I've sent to you, and you brazenly disregarded me and my commands. Uh, all there is is violence, immorality, and corruption in your hearts, and it's overflowed into the streets for hundreds of years. And so uh, Jeremiah writing to Jehoiakim, because he was alive and he was pro prophesying to that king, the number one guy, the first one with the first invasion. Jeremiah says to him, the Lord says, even if Moses and Samuel appeared before me, I'd still say, remove these people from my sight. Hey, Hebrews chapter 10. It's a dreadful thing to fall into the hands of the living God, whether you're one of his or not. Amen? And so uh, he says, only a few of you are going to survive. You know, if you treat me like that, so let's meet the few that survived and were scattered. We're going to go from chap uh, verses 3 to 7. Then the king ordered... Ashpenaz, finally, a cool name that we can all say. Ashpenaz. He orders Ashpenaz, chief of his court officials, to bring in some of the Israelites from the royal family and the nobility. Young men without any physical defect, handsome, showing aptitude for every kind of learning, well-informed, quick to understand, and qualified to serve. In the king's palace, in his cabinet, his administration team. <laughs> he was to teach them the language of the literature of the Babylonians. The king assigned them a daily amount of food and wine from the king's table. They were to be trained for three years, and after that, they were to enter the king's service. Among these were some from Judah. Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. The chief official gave them new names to Daniel, Belshazzar, to Hananiah, Shadrach, to Mishael, Meshach, and to Azariah, Abednego. 
Well, let's park there and talk about this here. Now, others will go to uh, Babylon. They will be exiled, but we're not going to hear about them. They deserve to go. They go in chains. Well, one sentence on their tombstone, their insignificant life. They did evil in the eyes of the Lord. Who wants to hear anything more? You know, there's a lot of people on the bus that gets off at Baghdad. By the way, Babylon Center, center is right where modern-day Baghdad is. So that bus takes Daniel, Meshach, their new names, right? Hananiah, Azariah, and Mishael, right? Takes them all. We're only going to hear about the few who are Bible heroes, who stand out as something to teach us. I mean, we can, the only thing teachable about the other lives that are all going over there, thousands of them, is don't poke the lion in the eye with a stick. You know, really, that is what it's really all about. So we've touched a little on history and theology. Let's talk about psychology now and brainwashing or the attempt to do so. So, so Nebuchadnezzar and conquerors like him uh, had a long-term outlook and, and quite the plan for taking over the world. So they knew a real uh, conqueror would not only just strong arm a people into subjection, but they, they would convert them as well. Now, if you just kind of muscle them into uh, submission, it's going to be costly to you. It's going to take a lot of time and effort uh, and work. And sooner or later, they're going to rebel again, but not if you convert them over. And so this is what he's going to try to do, uh, a more efficient use of POWs, you know? So that's exactly what Daniel and his three buddies are. And by the way, they're 15, 16 years old at the time of the, the bus ride. By the time they're going to stand before the king, they're about 20. So we're going to take a look at that. So he's thinking, you know, we're going to take the nobility so we know that Daniel and the three friends are of the line of David. They're related to King David. Uh, They might not be directly in the line, but they are of royal blood. So uh, these guys are where they went into the palace and these guys had association there, all right? And so they take them and they're going to re-educate them. Why put them to death? We'll use them on our team, you know? So they're gonna retrain them, reprogram them. And so uh, they're handsome, Uh, like King David was, uh, smart, bright, strong, able-bodied young men. And what's the purpose for reprogramming them? Uh, Well, you know, once once we got to deal with Jerusalem, who better to go in, uh, who can speak Hebrew and Aramaic and represent our interests and be one of us, right? And so, uh, and, and, and... that's what they're thinking. So uh, they really want to advance their kingdom. By the way, I mean, they, these guys had a lot to offer. So he also just plain wanted to advance his own self and his own kingdom. And so he saw something worthwhile in these guys. And so he's going to put them to use. Sinclair Ferguson, a great commentator, uh, said this about these verses. Nebuchadnezzar was not the last leader to see the value of if infiltrating the colleges and universities to find candidates for his future service. Now, funny, Nebuchadnezzar 
is going to try to re-educate and defile these guys so that they can serve him. And the Lord, the true king, is going to try to refine and discipline these guys so that they can serve him and his interests. Two kings, always. There are always two kings. And those two kings are always vying for men's hearts. And they are going about it in the similar ways that we will see uh, tonight. So it's good to pay attention because this isn't just about a story about these guys. It's a story about us, and that's why it's the word of God. So these verses reveal that King Nebuchadnezzar has a strategy, and it sounds pretty uh, eerily familiar. So number one, disfellowship them. Get them away from the source of their character, uh, the inspiration for the flame of their relationship with God. Take them away, disfellowship them, disconnect them from their surroundings. So back in their regular surroundings, they could worship with God's people. There was a remnant still worshiping the Lord, uh, teaching the word of God, the fellowship of believers. So it was isolate them, isolate them from the safety of the fold of God's holy people. And then, boom, attack. You know those nature shows? I bring them up a lot, you know? But you always know when somebody is going to get slaughtered, all right? It's when that one little antelope thinks, you know what? I'm going to go do my own thing. I'm tired of this whole flock. And it just steps out and goes into the meadow by itself. And the rest of the flock's looking like, what? What are you doing over there? And then the music starts. And you already know, you already know some cheetah is really hungry and some cheetah is locked on target, you see. That's always the thing. Just pull them out, put them over there. And so Satan will tell the the Christian, oh, you know, your feelings are hurt or you've got so-and-so or you don't fit in or, or you don't have a good time. And he gets them to isolate. Unplug them first before we can... Weaken them, get them over here, wrapped up in themselves and the world, and they're not under the word, they're not being cleansed, they're not being renewed, they're not being inspired, they're easy. Just pick them up, take them out of the city of God and put them in Babylon. Number two, reprogram them. Three-year indoctrination course on the language and literature of Babylon. Let us show you, boys. This is Babylon, baby, man. This is it. This is the world, man. Uh, how your upbringing and your culture is backwards and narrow and archaic and irrelevant. This is Babylon, man. The gold and the glitter and the splendor and the wisdom. We got progressive thinking here. You're going to hear about it for three years, man. Advanced cultures, all kinds of wonderful things. Modernity, fast and ferocious, man. Uh, Number three, we're going to spoil them with pleasure and luxury. Just corrupt them a little bit, you know? So just show them, look, they're to be fed with luxury foods from the palace. Okay, so there's something in it for you. You play along with, with us. You accept the language and the culture and the norms of this pagan society, and it'll go well for you. 
You'll be eating the food from the king's table. Can you imagine? They're thinking, the king's thinking, when those Hebrew boys who are used to just, just farm food, peasant farm food or whatever they eat, when they get a load of these servant girls coming in with these gold chargers filled with overflowing foods and all of that, you know, endless prime rib, steady flow of sparkling wines from the best Napa Valley vineyards, <laughs> you know, for free. Oh, nothing like a little surf and turf and an open bar and an open bar to help your indoctrination go down smoothly. <laughs> Thus saith the King Nebuchadnezzar. Yeah, he's, he's seeking, okay? I like what one guy said. He put it this way. Notice there doesn't seem to be an effort to oppose their Jewish understanding of God with Babylonian theological arguments. They'd apparently rather try to corrupt them morally than argue with them theologically. Once they have their hearts, then they get their minds too. Oh, yes. Yeah, it doesn't talk about the pretty girls bringing in the prime rib, but trust me, <laughs> they've thrown those in too. So, uh, then number four, they encourage a break with the past. They want to confuse them, so they give them new names. So I've got a little chart for you. Daniel means God is my judge, and he lived that way. Never forget that, as Mama said. God's going to judge you at the end. He's going to judge the world, man. You want to live with that heavenly perspective. You are God is my judge, and you live that way. Oh, no. No, the sun God will protect you, all right? That's what that name means. Okay, Hananiah, God is gracious. You live by that grace. You look to that grace. You respond to that grace. You don't, you, you don't resist that grace or provoke that grace. You, you accept and embrace him. You walk with him. No, we're going to change God as gracious to illuminated by the sun God. Mishael, who is like God? Oh, no, man, you're too young. You're too good looking for that kind of thought. We're going to say, who is like Venus, the goddess of love? The goddess of love. You like how I said that? The goddess of love. This 18-year-old guy, he's got hormones. He's good-looking. He's got what the world wants. We can't have him be thinking, you know, who's like God? I'll be thinking about some other thing. Azariah, the Lord is my helper. Uh-uh. It's a bed and a go. Worshiper of Nego. Nego was the God, their God lowercase of wisdom, the wisdom of Babylon. We want you to trade the Lord being your helper and your inspirer and the source of your wisdom, and we want you to take the wisdom of Babylon. You know, they had to hear those names called. They had to live dual citizenship. They had, they, they had to retain who they were when the world was trying to put a different name on them. We bear a name. It's called Christian. 
And the world doesn't like that name so much. It wants to give us other names. We're to retain the identity that God has for us as, as citizens of heaven. And so they just want to, they're saying, we no longer wish you to consider yourselves as you once did. Uh, you made a break with everything else. You got a new name. You got a new life. You got a new country. You got a new king. You got a new language. Uh, you've got new food. You've got a new worldview. You've got new literature. You've got new habits and customs and new clothes and new hairdo. All right? But, and also a new name. So, if we get you to think like a Babylonian, you'll live like a Babylonian. So, uh, this name change strategy really is uh, uh, wanting them to just come along, forget who they were and are in God's sight, and become what they want them to be. Uh, Romans 12, 1 and 2 uh, say... We are in the world, but not of it. So don't be conformed any longer to this world, but rather uh, be transformed by the renewing of your mind, uh, minds. And so uh, all these are, are at work against us, all these things. And so that's why it's a good idea to put on the full armor of God, Ephesians chapter 6, verses 10 and following, because two kings want our hearts, and only one king is going to win. So, uh, but you can only serve one of them, and here's how, uh, 8 through 16. But Daniel resolved not to defile himself with the royal food and wine. And he asked the chief official for permission not to defile himself in this way. Now God had caused the official to show favor and sympathy to Daniel, but the official told Daniel, I'm afraid of my lord, the king, who has assigned your food and drink. Why should he see you looking worse than the other young men your age? The king would then have my head because of you. Daniel then said to the guard whom the chief official had appointed over, Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, please test your servants for 10 days. Give us nothing but veggies to eat and water to drink. Then compare us with that of the young men who eat the royal food and treat your servants in accordance with what you see. So he agreed to this and tested them for 10 days. At the end of the 10 days, they looked healthier and better nourished than any of the young men who ate the royal food. So the guard took away their food their choice food, and the wine that they were to drink and gave them vegetables instead. I know how to pronounce vegetables, right? Let's just threw that in for your entertainment. So number three, time for some spiritual exercising. We've seen an attempt at brainwashing and now some spiritual exercising, right? So the rubber is going to meet the road. Now everybody can say what you want about what you believe in who's your God and all of that. But, but a time will come when you're tested and your lifestyle and your choice will reveal what, what truly you truly believe. And so it's a time for some testing here. I like 1 Timothy 4 and verse 8. Physical training is good, 
But training for godliness is much better. It promises benefits in this life and in the life to come. And so Paul was telling Timothy, listen, you know, don't get over uh, excited about working out in the gym physically. It's good. But then he says, man, work out spiritually. You know, read your Bible, pray, you know, force yourself to go to church, the gym, when you don't feel like going to the gym and work out there and, and, and practice being godly because it has benefits in this life and in the life to come. So it's time for Daniel and the boys to start exercising some faith. And we're going to take a good uh, look at this now. So, so number one, I, 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 this is important because it's how they don't compromise uh, given the, the amount of pressure that's over them. So he's going to draw some hard and fast lines in the sand about what's okay and what's unacceptable. So uh, here's a joke coming, so I'm just prepping you, okay? <laughs> Get jovial. Are you jovial yet? All right. So instead of working his abs, he's working on his absolutely nots. <laughs> you know what? Okay, moving on. If you've ever felt any pressure to compromise, listen very carefully and watch these guys. Now, they're, uh, taking a stand works when resolve is in place ahead of time. Taking a stand against compromise works when you've already resolved in your heart ahead of time before the food is put there. Before the food comes and everybody's looking and everybody's already put some hard work into preparing it for you and put it before you and everybody's staring to see if you like it, that's a little bit harder to say, oh, you know what? <laughs> oh, I wasn't thinking about that, even though you knew it was coming. Daniel's no fool. Daniel has a brain. He goes, you know what? It's coming. What am I going to do? He's already resolved in his heart. He already has a plan. He already knows. He's thinking ahead. You know, the guy who has an alcohol problem. He's driving all the, all the time on the way home. He passes the liquor store. He comes in for counseling to some pastor. What am I going to do? I have to pass it every day. You know what? How about find another way home? There's another way home. Why don't you just resolve in your heart before you end up, oh, look, there it is again. Why don't you do something beforehand so that you don't end up putting yourself in that situation? And that's exactly the wisdom of Daniel and these guys. He sees it coming. So right from the jump, he's resolved. And he, does, he doesn't like a few things, you know? He's caught wind that this is going to be what he's going to have to eat for three years and drink. Now, he, he doesn't like it for a few reasons. Number one, he doesn't like the, the bribe part of it, the flattering part of it, you know, the let, let, let me just buy you because everybody's got a price, man, even you Jewish uh, worshipers. You've got a price, you know? So let's start with, with your stomach. Let's get in through your stomach and your appetites and comfort and luxuries and all of that. And he doesn't also like the non-kosher idea. I'm sure there's pork chops on that plate and cheeseburgers <laughs> with bacon on top, you know, and shrimp scampi. You know, they're not supposed to eat shellfish either, you know. Now, what's the big deal? What's the big deal? It's a big deal because you start with a little thing. 
Satan is no dummy. He gets you to go from A to B. B is not very far from A. You know, you can always get back to B. Look, there's A right there. Look, whoa, whoa, that's not so hard, you know? And then you get from B to C, and then C is not very far from B. Okay, it's a hop and a step back to A, and then you get to D because it's just right next to C, and it's not that far, and E is right there from D. And as long as you keep looking at, oh, it's just short there, and then you end up at Z because you gave up A to B. Daniel's, Daniel's smarter than that. And so is every Christian with the Holy Spirit if they apply the wisdom there. And so it's always harder to not compromise if the lines are not clearly drawn beforehand. It's always harder to not compromise if the lines are not clearly drawn beforehand and a plan in place. Did that make sense? I'm sure there was an easier way to say that. So the single young adults, I tell you, resolve in your heart right now. Just say it in your heart right now because it's Bible. You're not supposed to partner with an unbeliever. You're not supposed to get married to an unbeliever if you're a believer. So why will you save the information when you meet somebody who you think is cute and you kind of have that attraction and the warmies, right? Why are you going to save the information? The warmies, I don't know where I get that from. (laughs) But you all knew what I meant. Why, on God's green earth, Are you going to save the information that, oh, and by the way, I love Jesus, and I'm a Christian, I'm a born-again Christian. Why are you going to save that until after the emotions are stirred up, and after you start talking about dating, and after you know he likes you and you like him? That's not what Daniel would do. That's not what any smart person would do because he's resolved in his heart not to defile his relationship with God before it comes his way. So when you first meet the person and you start talking, you say, oh, yeah, well, oh, hey, I go to the rock because I'm a Christian. And yeah, yeah, right away, boom. You find out what's going on. And if it's a yes, it's praise the Lord. If it's a no, it's a no. You get A new job, you have some flexibility. Why don't you say something like, you know, I'd I'd like, if it's possible, not to be available for Sundays. I'm a Christian, I go to church, worship's important. You know, is that possible? Yeah, sure. I've had jobs like that. I worked all the way up until eight years ago, a full-time job. (laughs) I've always said things like that, and they always bend over backwards for the most part. Right? Oh, why, why, why not tell them right at the start instead of when it's impossible because you didn't tell them, right? Daniel's not going to wait until the food's sitting there. Oh, oy vey. Ooh, I can't eat this, you know? What is he going to say? No, he's not going to say that. Before the food's set before him, before it's awkward and there's pressure and it's all working against him, The battle is being fought and won in his heart beforehand when he resolves, I am a Christian. I am born again. I love the Lord and I don't want to defile myself. So you know what? When I go into a hotel room, one brother told me, on a business trip, I go straight to the television and I unplug it. 
because I'm not going to defile myself and I'm not going to wait until it's the wrong moment and whoops, I hit the wrong thing and whoa, what's that? Okay, no, that's not going to happen because beforehand I've resolved in my heart like Daniel. There's some lines, man. I'm going to do my best to make sure that I don't put myself in that kind of situation. There's a number two, taking a stand doesn't need to be obnoxious. Uh, look at how many times he says, please. It's a request that's not a demand. Excuse us, but we're Jews, okay? We don't eat pork. I've got a Nazarite vow. I can't drink wine, okay? So take your wine away. No, that's not going to happen. He says, hey, please. Could I please be excused? I've got some kosher things. It's my background. And, you know, it's just really upsetting for me. And I, I, is there a way? You know, here's how it works out. So he, he's saying like, wow, man, how gracious to be served from the king's table. But because I'm Jewish, sir, you know, I'd like to be excused. Uh, please excuse me from this, you know. Uh, a gentle tongue can break a bone, Proverbs 25. He, he's just gentle. He says, uh, no angry protests, no slamming dishes down, no threats of hunger strikes, or no long Bible lectures, you know. Uh, here's the response, paraphrase. As much as I like you guys, you know the king's temper. If your ribs are showing in the least bit, or if you yawn, one too many times, I could lose my life. I'm responsible to fatten you guys up. And, and, and any lack in your sustenance or your energy is going to be a capital offense. My life will be over. So there's a counterproposal. Okay, well, sir, would you please consider, please, would you please consider a test? Here comes the faith. Give us 10 days, a trial run. Prepare a vegan menu. <laughs> Beans, grains, lentils, hummus, vegetable stews. Sounds pretty good, actually. A vegetarian diet with lots of water. And check us out in about a week. Well, there in verse 15, they were at, they were at PE class and training, <laughs> right? And... and <laughs> Ten days later, the four Hebrews were lapping the other guys and doing ten times as many chin-ups and pull-ups and sit-ups and just, just, just shining brightly compared to their uh, friends there. And uh, that's what verse 20 will tell us, 20, ten times better than the other guys. Uh, so uh, the helps for remaining uncompromised, number one, an inner resolve before God not to defile yourself. Number two, convictions put out there right at the start. Number three, common courtesy and respect when dealing with outsiders. And number four, faith to take some risks. They put themselves out there. Who knows, you know? Just feed us grains and water. And, and we'll, 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 uh, we'll outrun the other guys on the, on the field. We will? That's faith. He's saying, God, you, you, you got one guy friendly. He's smiling at us all the time. I'm going to take a chance with you. I'm going to step out in faith. Okay, let's finish up. 17 through 21. To these four young men, God gave knowledge and understanding, all kinds of literature and learning. And Daniel could understand visions and dreams of all kinds. At the end of the time set by the king, three years, to bring them in, the chief official presented them to Nebuchadnezzar. 
the guy who killed half of the people they know, the guy who, who destroyed Jerusalem and leveled the temple to the ground, that guy called them in. The king talked with them, and he found none equal to Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. So they entered the king's service in every matter of wisdom and understanding about which the king questioned them. He found them 10 times better than all the magicians and enchanters and sorcerers in his whole kingdom. And Daniel remained there until the first year of King Cyrus. So let's finish up here. Uh, some spiritual exercise in godliness, and it looks like it's paid off. So it's final exam time here, 17 through 21, and we're going to see God's gracious hand of blessing because God honors faithfulness. He always does. He always will. So serving the Lord, doing it God's way is never in vain. You know, there are a lot of dilemmas we face, you know, and we want to do it the convenient way or we want to compromise a little bit here and there. I always tell people who ask me advice, you know, it looks like, but if I do it God's way, I'm going to lose a little bit here, right? You know, we're going to lose the house or we'll lose a little bit of rent or we'll lose a little bit of the tax return or whatever, you know, you're, I'm going to miss out. But you never do. You never will. Because God always blesses and is faithful. to. Whenever you do the right thing, you're blessed. Burn that one across your soul. Whenever you do the right thing, even though it seems like, ouch, I'm going to lose something here. You're gaining. You're gaining. And that's what happens here. We're going to miss out on all of this luxury food and the, the open bar and all of that and not really a loss at all. And the, uh, So serving the Lord in this way uh, brought blessing. I really like uh, 1 Corinthians 15 that says, Therefore, my dear brothers and sisters, stand firm, let nothing move you. Always give yourselves fully to the work of the Lord, because you know that your labor in the Lord is never in vain. Just never in vain. So here's payday. God opens the storehouses of heavenly treasuries of knowledge and wisdom, just dumps them all out into these guys' hearts. And they know they've got to defend their thesis. They're being called in to this guy who he's dominating 200,000 square miles the kingdom of Babylon. The whole region of Asia Minor and Asia itself. The destroyer of beloved Jerusalem says, hey, come in, I've got some hard questions to ask you. I want to see how your three years went. Wow. And in they come. Shiny-faced, refined scholars, calm, cool, collected, and they wow the king with every one of their answers. <laughs> you know, the king wants to have a personal meeting with them because they're going to serve on his cabinet. That's crazy, you know, if all, all goes well. And so he grills them. And what does he ask them about? Over and over it says, and he asks them. What's he asking them? Of course he's asking the questions, the big questions. Where did this all come from? Why am I here? What happens after you die? You don't think any of that came up? He knows everything else. Everything else is pretty easy. It's the hard question he, he wants to know. What are we all doing here? How did the earth get here? 
You think they went, oh, we, we're not allowed to talk about religious things. No, I don't think so. I think they had tact and diplomacy and wisdom, and they spoke. Their demeanor and the way they carried themselves and their confidence because they didn't care about the, the, the king who's sitting there in the flesh and blood. They cared about the king of kings and the Lord of lords who would come one day through the clouds with great glory. That's the king they were looking at. And when you have your, uh, your eyes on him and you reverence him, you don't fear him. You fear him more than him. And he picked all of that up. Like, whoa. Man, they're so confident and not arrogant about it. Just such peace. And, and what's that shine in their eyes? And, you know, it was, more, it was more how they said it and how they conducted themselves than even the content. Where are you going to get Holy Spirit-filled guys in Babylon? <laughs> you know, they stood out. They were letting their light shine uh, before men that others might see and come to God. And guess what? He does. This is the beginning for him. By chapter six, he's, he's issuing out commands to the whole earth. You better not say one bad thing about that God of Daniel because he's humbled me. And he's my God now. So this is the beginning. They make quite an impression, you know, and so what you see here, really, oh, oh, by the way, that last sentence is pretty important. And Daniel remained there in his administration, in the administration, because he's going to outlive him until the first year of King Cyrus. They have really specific dates now for all of this. And you could tell what year Daniel was born and all of this. Daniel is about 15 when he gets on the bus. He's about 20 when he's having this interview, but he's about 85 at the end of the book of Daniel. He lives the entire time because he says in Daniel, in the third year of Cyrus, I, Daniel, he's about 85. So he lives to about 90. He lives, the Jews were told, you're gonna be away in the foreign land for 70 years. And there's a reason for that. I'll explain that next time. But God has a number where he got the 70 years from it. It's very interesting. And he says, after 70 years, you will seek me, you will find me, and I, I'm going to tell Cyrus to let you all go. And he's going to fund your way and rebuild the temple and Jerusalem. Right? So he's alive. He gets to see them leaving and going back. The very one who was brought 70 years Earlier, And so he lives to about 90. Um, so, you know, wrapping it up, like Joseph, you know, the worst thing that ever happened to Joseph, he was sold into slavery, left for dead in that pit. God raised him up, right? The worst thing that ever happened to, to Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, Azariah, God turned into a good thing. He turned into a good thing for them. Do you know how many billions with a B of Christians through the ages have, have lived uncompromised Christian lives, billions of them saying, I'm going to be like these men were in the face of all their persecutions all over the earth for, for 
thousands of years. They've, they've read them. Do you not think that the second load now of Christian martyrs uh, who have been marched by ISIS to a beach, the second batch, now we've got 40, 50 of them marching. They're marching on the video. They're marching. I did not watch the video, but I see the pictures and the, the stills. They are marching. Those are all Christian men, and they have read Daniel, and they've heard sermons on Daniel, and none of them are on the ground. None of them are dragging their feet. None of them are being dragged. They're all walking and marching, and they all know Daniel, Meshach, Abednego. They know that. And they stand there, and you see the knife there, and nobody's falling over, nobody's fighting. Their lips are moving. They're praying. Because we've got a Daniel. We've got a Jesus. But we've got a Daniel who went into a, a den of lions because he wouldn't stop professing his faith in God. And we've got, I want to call them by their real names, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, who would rather be tossed alive into a furnace than to bow down to some stupid statue when the music plays, bow. Uh, we'd rather die. Well, that can be arranged. We're going to toss you in there. Well, you know, the God that we serve, he can save us. But even if he doesn't, we're not going to bow to you. <laughs> That's chutzpah. <laughs> That's pure Jewish chutzpah right there. We're on their way over there. You know what? He may or he may not. But if he doesn't, just know we're going to our desk because we're not going to bow to you. See ya. <laughs> and that's not all. In Matthew chapter 2 and verse 1, we've got wise men coming from Babylon to look for the Messiah. 500 years after Daniel he left enough evidence in prophecies and mathematical equations and in his writings that the, the, the magi, that's what they're called, the magi from Babylon get a clue. They look, they, God gives them a sign and they follow. And they know more than the Jewish king, the Jewish king Herod and, and, and the Pharisees and the Sadducees. Duh. Is there somebody born? Well, they come in and they say, where is the king of the Jews? He's born, right? Where's this party? And they're like, oh, yeah, right, king of the Jews, yeah. And then they have to say, hey, go check the Bible. What's it say about where's he supposed to be born? But who knows? 500 years from Daniel, from Daniel's home place there, they come calling. Because when you live a life like Daniel lived, you affect lives and generations yet unborn. And that effect will cause men to seek and find the Messiah. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we just, we love you. We're so thankful that those men, those young men, they could have gone either way, but they went your way. And we're so blessed and so inspired and motivated by that kind of courage and devotion to God. And 
Lord, help us to be convicted and to put into practice, Lord, the truths that, that help us to stand for you in, amidst this uh, intimidating culture, Lord. In Jesus' name we ask. Amen. Let's stand together. Closing song. You have been listening to The Rock Podcast. Our regular services are held on Wednesday nights at 7 p.m. and Sunday mornings at 8.30 and 10.30 a.m. in Santa Rosa, California. If you would like to learn more, please visit our website at calvarytherock.org.